Welcome back to the Second World Sepsis Congress. Over the next 90 minutes, we will learn about the different faces and challenges of sepsis. If you want to listen to one specific speaker, please use the chapter markers. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for World Sepsis Congress there. Let me hand it over to my colleague, Nathan Nielsen from the United States to get us started. So, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to our worldwide audience for the second World Sepsis Congress. I'd like to welcome you all to session three, the different faces and challenges of sepsis. My name is Dr. Nathan Nielsen. I come to you from, uh, as, as of yet, hurricane-spared New Orleans in Louisiana in the United States. We have a great session on tap for you shortly. We have uh, experts from across the world who will be speaking on sepsis in the elderly, sepsis meningitis, and Ebola disease, and influenza, malaria, and in malignancy cancer patients. These are all very established, excellent speakers. I hope you will enjoy the sessions as much as I do. I would like to begin with our first speaker, Dr. Hannah Wunsch from the University of Toronto and a professor of anesthesia and critical care who needs very little introduction to anyone in the sepsis field. She is a renowned expert in critical care services and organizations, sepsis epidemiology, and resource utilization and long-term outcomes. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Wunsch, the floor is yours. Thanks very much, Nathan. Uh, thank you to all of you who have uh, tuned into this uh, kind of amazing session today. Um, I'm going to be talking for the next 10 minutes about sepsis and recovery in the elderly. This is a really large topic, and so I'm going to narrow it down in just a moment to explain what I'm, I'm going to focus on. Um, I do want to mention that I have no conflicts of interest, but I am an associate editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and do have some funding for some related research from a number of organizations. So as this is a, a really large topic, um, I want to kind of think a, a little bit uh, focusing on what I consider unique about the elderly in terms of thinking about the issue of sepsis and recovery. And so I'm just going to highlight three specific areas and make a, a couple of, of key points for each of them. Um, so these topics that I'm going to cover are really mortality from sepsis, the issue of comorbidity, and then frailty. And so Highlighting first the issue of mortality from sepsis. Um, as we know from work by people like Jack Awashna at the University of Michigan, the population burden and long-term survivorship after severe sepsis uh, has improved, increased, as we're seeing more people with sepsis. And uh, he showed back in 2012 increasing incidence of severe sepsis in the elderly and, uh, and actually demonstrated kind of how much this is increasing relative to something like acute myocardial infarctions where the incidence is kind of flat or decreasing. Um, and so, of course, with an increasing incidence, what we're seeing is an increasing number of survivors per year. So in that sense, survivorship is clearly increasing in everybody but in the elderly with a kind of strong uptick in terms of three and five year survivors. There's a however here, though, and this is really the, the key point to make about mortality, which is that when we think about the elderly in sepsis, we cannot forget that 
still a key piece of the issue for the elderly is, in fact, the enormous mortality associated with sepsis. Um, and I think that this is actually still best illustrated by now quite an old graph, uh, but one by Derek Angus published back in 2001 that looked at the incidence uh, by age and parsed it out from you know those less than one years of age up to greater than 85 and showing really a linear relationship in terms of hospital mortality associated with age that goes up to sort of 30, 35, 40% depending on just how elderly people are. Um, and that this really hasn't changed all that much over time. Um, and that we know, therefore, that mortality in hospital and then also longer term remains a concern. In more recent work, Hallie Prescott out of the University of Michigan has published some really nice work looking at elderly cohorts with sepsis. Uh, in the BMJ in 2016, she demonstrated the long-term mortality for elderly patients, and I've highlighted that it's almost 50% by about um, uh, two to three years, uh, and, uh, and that also really started to tease apart how much of this is the infection versus just having inflammation, a sort of ongoing debate, and showed using matched controls that, in fact, although the, the mortality for those was what she called sterile inflammation was also high over this extended period, that there was an additional increased mortality for the elderly associated with having sepsis itself, suggesting that there's something about the infection as well as the inflammation that is contributing to this increased mortality. So, you know, the really the take home here is, is the, the frustrating message that, um, that we still really need to think about mortality and that the elderly really constitute that high risk group, both for short and long term mortality. Now, the other piece of survivorship and what we want to think about in terms of improving our outcomes for patients, though, is comorbidity and um, and new morbidity and new uh, sort of limitations on abilities. And so I just want to make, again, a kind of one or two points about comorbidity. Now, the elderly are not the only ones with comorbidity, and so to say it's unique to the elderly is, is maybe a, a bit of a disservice there. But, of course, we do see increasing burden of comorbidity both before and after things like sepsis in the elderly. Um, and I think a key point when we're talking about understanding what is the impact of sepsis is uh, really best made by uh, work that was published back in 2013 uh, by a group at University of Washington and University of Michigan looking at depression after severe sepsis. And they had a nice cohort that allowed them to follow these patients out over time, showing a pretty substantial burden of depression after sepsis. Um, which is alarming and concerning and makes us think about what can we do differently in terms of caring for these patients. But there's a slightly different message when you actually see what they had access to, which was the information on depression before severe sepsis. Now, there is a slight uptick associated with a sepsis episode, but it is a small portion of the overall comorbidity scene. So this is not to say that we shouldn't care about, think about, be concerned about new comorbidity occurring on our patients after sepsis, particularly in the elderly, but to recognize that we need to really um, account for and understand what patients are coming in with that may be unrelated to the sepsis episode. 
in the last few minutes I have, I really want to focus on frailty, which again, the caveat here, this is not truly unique to the elderly. Nice work by Sean Bagshaw out of Canada has actually shown, um, looking at ICU patients, that there are a substantial number of younger patients who actually meet criteria for frailty. Um, however, we do know that the burden substantially increases as people get older, and that's really the group we're looking at when we think about frailty. We did a, a, some work a while ago where we um, looked at, at elderly ICU patients in the U.S. And the caveat here is this is ICU patients, not sepsis patients alone. Um, and we really wanted to quantify who are we seeing coming into the ICU, where, of course, a lot of these patients are the septic patients. And we found about 20% of this group were what we would call robust, meaning they had no chronic disease, they didn't have cancer, and they were not in any way looking frail. And we found about 25% of patients had some markers for frailty on admission, which of course then was also compounded by things like chronic organ failure, such as congestive heart failure or cancer, um, but gives us a sense of what is the burden of frailty for our patients we tend to take care of who are on the older side. Then again, we started to see some uh, nice cohort studies coming out looking at the impact of frailty. Again, the caveat here is this is all comers to the ICU, not just sepsis patients, but work by uh, Sean Bagshaw published in this case in Critical Care Medicine in 2015 that um, shows really a kind of dose response comparing those in Alberta who have not been in the ICU in terms of their health-related quality of life, those in the ICU who are not frail and then the effect of frailty on six month and 12 month quality of life. And this is seen both in terms of the mortality uh, and also the quality of life and really every measure is showing the same story in terms of this increasing impact of frailty. Now, what I think is exciting about frailty is that there is, I think, the potential to intervene and to make a difference here. I think it's very hard to say, let's take the patient with class 4 congestive heart failure and move the needle on that patient, but it does seem like there is potential to move the needle on frailty. A lot of the work right now is being done uh, in um, areas such as surgical populations where it's a little bit more circumscribed and there's pot potentially a little bit more time to think about these patients before we're taking care of them, which is obviously not a luxury we tend to have when we're thinking uh, about the patients coming in with sepsis, but I think creates a nice model to think about this. And I just want to highlight two studies. This one um, that was in JAMA surgery just in 2017. Um, that was looking at a, a frailty screening initiative. It's a before and after study. And what they did was they classified their patients using the RAI score, which is a, one of the measures of frailty. And what they did is very simple. And the reason I like it is that this is doable. Their intervention was essentially just the screening. And they demonstrated before this intervention that those who, were, who had a kind of high burden of frailty um, were at really substantial risk of mortality after their surgery. Um, and they started just flagging people as being frail notifying the people involved who were going to be taking care of that patient that this person was frail and really just using that to say, okay, go. You know, we're not telling you what to do about this, um, but just um, 
be aware of this and maybe spend some time thinking about how you want to take care of this patient given these concerns. And the after figure shows a really substantial reduction in mortality. Now, it comes with the caveat, of course, of being a before-after study. But what I like about it is the fact that it is a minimalist intervention and doesn't proscribe a lot of kind of heavy resource utilization in order to make a difference. And then finally, uh, another study also out of the surgical population, uh, which is a little more resource intensive, is the idea of a geriatric consultation. And this is in trauma patients in particular, um, looking at three, six, and 12-month outcomes. And what they found using a mandatory geriatric consultation for patients over the age of 65 was a, a split that occurred in the kind of six to 12-month range, where they started to see those who had received the consultation having improved Improvements in things like ability to do their shopping and housework, which are things that we tend not to think about and focus on, but certainly are very important to our elderly patients. So in conclusion, for the elderly, I think, unfortunately, we have to be keep remembering that we're still de dealing with a very huge burden of mortality itself. Some of this excess is from the sepsis, and then clearly some is related to things such as the comorbidity and frailty of these individuals coming in. I think we do still need to be careful. We know the baseline of individuals when talking about the goals for recovery and when quantifying what their recovery looks like that we know where we're starting from. Um, I think greater awareness of frailty is certainly a uh, beginning, and this is where I think that's most exciting as in terms of large potential uh, going forward for maybe some tailored interventions to improve the outcomes for elderly patients. Thank you very much, and I think that there's a, a couple minutes for questions. Excellent talk, Dr. Wench. A great uh, synopsis of a very complicated and certainly burgeoning uh, field within sepsis. Uh, a quick question. Do you think that we're getting better at treating the elderly as there are more survivors, or is this simply a function of the fact that we're recognizing more cases of sepsis, we're more attuned to the search for sepsis, particularly in the elderly population? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, that's not just related to the elderly in terms of our being able to identify sepsis. I know we there's an entire session um, coming up later, uh, I think today, in terms of that question of really how do we identify sepsis in populations and how much of what we're seeing is being better attuned uh, and how much is that there's actually more sepsis out there. I don't think we fully know the answer to that, um, but I do think that there is some, um, and maybe this is just my optimism bias, better attunement to the concerns of the elderly and what it means to be elderly uh, dealing with sepsis. Some of that may be better palliative care and end-of-life care. So, of course, mortality itself is not uh, actually the only uh, you know, prime measure of whether there's been success. Um, so, a, a complicated question with no easy answers, um, and hopefully um, some of the later sessions will maybe be able to better answer uh, and tease apart the, the answer to that. Excellent. Well, Dr. Wunsch, I thank you very much for your time. I think we have to move on to our next speaker, but we Great. look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Our next speaker is Dr. Diedrich van de Beek. Please forgive me if I mispronounce anything. Uh, esteemed Professor of Neurology at the Academic Medical Center in Amsterdam of the Netherlands. Uh, he is the co-director of the Amsterdam Neuroscience Institute since 2016 
with an active research portfolio in all things neurological and sepsis-related, bacterial meningitis, encephalitis, or encephalitis for the Europeans among us. Uh, without further ado, Dr. Van der Beek. Well, thank you very much. Um, first of all, I would like to thank you for this invitation to speak. Uh, for me, it's uh, quite special. It's the first time that I give a lecture so uh, online. So um, um, I've uh, I've no conflict of interest. So um, uh, the next ten minutes, I will uh, briefly introduce the disease we will be discussing uh, now, and we'll be working on a lot in Amsterdam. I will start on explaining how to approach a patient, then focus on the role of sepsis and systemic complications in patients with community-acquired bacterial meningitis and how these complications impact outcomes. And then finalize with uh, uh, the search of, of, of our search of new treatments in this uh, area. So bacterial meningitis is a deadly infection of the central nervous system. And this disease historically is caused by three major pathogens. And these pathogens, the pneumococcus, the meningococcus, or the Haemophilus influenzae, uh, all colonize the nasopharynx. Um, and we don't get ill, but however, in some individuals, these bacteria are able to invade the host, survive in the bloodstream, even cross the blood-brain barrier and cause a devastating brain infection. Um, and it's a very severe disease. So over the last century, the, the mortality rates have decreased. Um, by, for, for example, pneumococcal meningitis, the mortality rate is still 30%. Uh, which is much too high, so we need new treatment. Another trend over last years is the effect of the introduction of conjugate vaccines. So these conjugate vaccines have really changed the epidemiology of bacterial meningitis. Nowadays, um, the most common causative pathogen is the pneumococcus, and it causes about uh, two-thirds to 75% of all cases, at least in Africa and European countries, and the pneumococcus is the most severe form of bacterial meningitis. So when you see a patient with suspected meningitis, you should remember that these patients can deteriorate very quickly, and it's very difficult to predict which patients will deteriorate or which patient is stable. Therefore, in a disease as deadly as bacterial meningitis, in most cases, diagnostics and treatment should go hand in hand. In the recent European guidelines on meningitis, we recommend to start treatment immediately in case of high clinical suspicion, when there is an instable situation or where there is uh, clinical deterioration. In all patients, treatment should be started within one hour after presentation. And if you encounter a patient, you should evaluate vital functions or blood cultures, blood tests, then assess severity and suspicion of meningitis, and that takes about typically one or two minutes. And if a meningitis cannot be excluded, a lumbar puncture should be performed. Cerebral spinal fluid examination confirms your diagnosis, identifies the cause of organisms, and thereby rationalizes your treatment. In the acute treatment of bacterial meningitis should not only consist of antibiotics, but also of optimal supportive care, and in high and medium income countries, you should treat your patients with adjunctive dexamethasone treatment. 
the ratio, the rationale of using dexamethasone originates from animal studies. And in these animal studies, these animals are injected with pneumococci in the cerebral spinal fluid. We wait for a while and these animals get very sick and then we do research with them. And these animal studies show that outcome is associated with severity of the host inflammatory response. And if you interfere in this inflammatory response, for example, with dexamethasone, um, at least in these animals, you can um, um, decrease the, the rate of unfavorable outcome. We showed for the first time in adults in the European randomized control trial that using dexamethasone reduced the rate of unfavorable outcome overall from 25 to 50%. And the effect was most apparent in the pneumococcal subgroup. Um, these results were confirmed by Cochrane meta-analysis and by an individual patient data meta-analysis but importantly, dexamethasone has, is only beneficial in medium and high-income countries. To evaluate the effect or the impact or importance of sepsis and systemic complications in meningitis, uh, we used our prospective cohort studies. In the Netherlands, we build an excellent meningitis network, and we include data of all patients with bacterial meningitis in the Netherlands. And we have a population about, of about 60 million uh, uh, inhabitants. We have cohorts of more than 3,000 patients. These are the predictors of uh, outcome in our cohort, so both unfavorable outcome and mortality. And there are all, uh, um, uh, there are lots of, of predictive factors, but you can group them in, um, in, in, large, uh, uh, in large groups. For example, those predictive of pneumococcal infection. We know that pneumococcal infection has the highest mortality rate. Central nervous system inflammation, which was apparent from the animal studies. But most of these factors point towards systemic compromise or sepsis. This was also shown by a prospective cohort study on pneumococcal meningitis performed in the pre-dexamethasone era. So prior dexamethasone was introduced in the Netherlands as routine therapy for pneumococcal meningitis. In a total, we categorized the cause of death of 350 episodes and um, uh, sepsis, cardiorespiratory failure, and multi-organ failure or systemic complications related to sepsis were the main causes of death, mainly in the elderly population. Interestingly, we also did this analysis in our randomized controlled trial population of the dexamethasone study, um, and we noticed that the effect of dexamethasone was mainly in reducing uh, the systemic complications. So apparently we do something good with adjunctive dexamethasone, at least in our high-income countries. In lower-income countries where disease burden is highest, there is no profit of dexamethasone. But still, the outcome is not good enough. So using our cohort studies, uh, we try to do translational research. And uh, we have an open access database. All researchers are allowed to use our data and we included more than 3,000 patients and the cost is 
bacteria. With this cohort, we can do nice research and we found out that the complement component is crucial in the outcome. The complement system is crucial in outcome in bacterial meningitis. And more specifically, we found an association between outcome and C5, uh, so complement component 5. We associated CSF levels and blood levels of C5A with severity. And then we went back to our mouse model and found out the mechanism is uh, through C5A, which is an toxin attracting uh, inflammatory cells. As a last step, we used our animal model. We randomized our mice and treated them with an anti-C5 antibody and showed that if you treat these animals with pneumococcal meningitis with anti-C5 antibody, you can further uh, reduce the systemic complications and the outcome in uh, these animals with pneumococcal meningitis. So to conclude, I showed you that pneumococcal meningitis is the most common and most severe form of bacterial meningitis. Dexamethasone improves outcome at least in high-income and medium-income countries. Most important factors determining the outcome are systemic compromise and sepsis. And complement component 5, especially C5A, might be a new promising treatment target uh, to further improve outcome of our patients with pneumococcal meningitis. I thank you for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Vandebeek. That was a great overview of a very complicated topic. I have one question for myself and then some others from the audience. The first question for myself re refers back to something you referred to a couple of times, is that dexamethasone only appears to be beneficial in higher-income countries. Uh, why do you think there's no benefit seen in the lower-income countries? Yeah, so 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 we we don't know. So that should be the uh, the answer. Uh, we did an individual meta analysis after our trial was published. Several other trials in medium and low income countries were 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 published, and we pulled all our data on an individual level, and then we tried to find out one factor that could explain that, and we we couldn't find that. So the, the obvious question was, is it HIV? But that, that, that wasn't the case. So some patients with HIV still benefit from dexamethasone. So, so we don't know. Uh, pr probably it's like a combination of factors. It's the older population with pneumococcal meningitis who's HIV negative who benefit most from dexamethasone. Oh, very interesting. So a question from uh, one of our audience members. Uh, what is the approach, or how does the approach differ in uh, community-acquired bacterial meningitis for the newborn? There are different pathogens, there are different approach, different antibiotic regimens. Yeah, so, so in the newborn, so in really in the neonates, the group B streptococci are most common in hysteria as well. So, so you need antibiotics to, to cover that. So most patients in most countries, third generation cephalosporin is used, and sometimes kentomycin is added. Um, so, so that really differs. Dexamethasone is not has not proven to be uh, effective in neonates. And uh, one trial was done was underpowered and didn't show an effect. But we simply don't know. So, in the in our European guidelines, we do not recommend dexamethasone in neonates. Hmm. 
the next question, uh, your opinion about some of the newer diagnostic techniques, uh, film array, biofire, and the like, uh, rapid amplification techniques for uh, ideologic diagnoses for meningitis. So, so I think the, these these kits are really promoted by the uh, by the industry. Uh, but if you look at the evidence around, there there, there is few evidence that, that that's really helpful. And uh, there are some retrospective studies, some uh, not so good prospective study in my perspective. And I'm not convinced we are not using it. Um, so you think I, it's too think early to tell? I, I, yeah. Well, I think before we sh we use these kits. We should do good studies, including cost-effectiveness. Uh, I mean, these kits look very nice, look like a coffee mm -hmm. machine, and you get results. But we don't know whether they're worthwhile. Very good. Uh, following question: In endemic, uh, in in areas where endemic disease like tuberculosis is particularly common, does that change your approach towards treating for meningitis? Um. Well, first of all, most endemic areas with tuberculosis are, are low-income countries. So dexamethasone is not effective there. Um, uh, if, you, uh, you, if you treat TB meningitis, you should also treat with dexamethasone. So, if, so, so the question perhaps is not whether you should give dexamethasone, but whether you should, should focus on bacterial meningitis or TB meningitis. Um, I think uh, that that's the main question, and there are all kind of algorithms uh, predicting whether you have TB or bacterial meningitis, but it, it, that remains difficult. Mm -hmm. And do we know the influence of uh, steroid therapy like dexamethasone in tuberculosis? Yeah, so in TB meningitis, dexamethasone has beneficial effects. It was filed on in Vietnam, uh, showing beneficial effects. Uh, and also Cochrane meat analysis showing the beneficial effect of dexamethasone. In, in bacterial meningitis, so in community-acquired bacterial meningitis, we only give it four days. So in TB meningitis, we give it in a much more prolonged period. Yeah, very interesting. And the dose depends on the, on, on, on the severity of, uh, of the illness. Well, Dr. Vandermeek, thank you for a wonderful presentation. We have many questions still lingering. Unfortunately, I could not get to all of them, and we have other speakers lined up. But thank you so much for a very engaging and thoughtful presentation. We look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. So, our next presentation is, alas, not live, uh, the esteemed Dr. Shevin Jacob has actually been called timely enough or appropriately enough to uh, assist with a Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And his pre-recorded message here or lecture here will actually focus on sepsis in Ebola disease, virus disease. Uh, quickly, Dr. Jacob is a senior clinical lecturer in sepsis research at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and has been involved for several years in sepsis in resource-constrained settings, uh, Uganda, Congo, and the like and clearly is an active participant with WHO interventions in these arena. So without further ado, uh, the pre-recorded version of Dr. Shevin Jacob on sepsis and Ebola virus disease.
Greetings to the organizers and delegates of the Second World Sepsis Congress. Unfortunately, I am unable to provide this talk live to you today because I've been deployed by the World Health Organization to the Democratic Republic of Congo to help support its response to the ongoing Ebola outbreak there. Nevertheless, it is timely that I had the opportunity to speak to you about sepsis and Ebola virus disease, also referred to as EVD. With the 2013 to 2016 Ebola outbreak in West Africa and the recent outbreaks in the DRC, we continue to learn more and more about the clinical manifestations of EVD. Today, I will share with you an overview of observations from the bedside and the bench regarding sepsis and its manifestations in EVD. To start, some salient features of Ebola virus. Ebola virus is a single-stranded RNA virus and a member of the Filoviridae family. It is surrounded by a lipid envelope, which ironically can be easily destroyed by soap, chlorine, or ultraviolet light. To date, there have been more than 25 outbreaks of Ebola virus since it was first discovered in 1976. The case fatality ratio, or CFR, has varied across these outbreaks and seems to depend upon the viral species, four of which have manifested in humans, including Zaire, Sudan, Bundabujo, and Thai forest viruses. Zaire, which is abbreviated as EBOV, has been the most common and is associated with the highest CFR exceeding 80% in some outbreaks. We are all aware of the recent West Africa Ebola outbreak from 2013 to 2016. It primarily involved Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, but also spread to other countries in West Africa. As well, some patients infected in West Africa were evacuated and cared for in European countries and the U.S., where nosocomial spread occurred in a few instances. It was unprecedented in its size, with over 28,000 people infected and over 11,000 people succumbing to their infection. While we don't know the proximate cause of death in all of these cases, our collective experience in this outbreak has provided us with a better understanding of the clinical presentation of EVD. While there are various manifestations of the disease, EVD has a somewhat predictable course with a continuum of illness severity from the early phase of disease progressing to a gastrointestinal phase and ultimately to a terminal phase. As patients progress through the EVD continuum, the probability of survival diminishes. In the early phase of Ebola virus disease, a patient might present with nonspecific symptoms like a mild fever and headache. During this time, the patient can still drink, eat, and ambulate. As the days continue, the fever and headache persist. The patient's appetite decreases. There may be onset of nausea and mild to moderate diarrhea, epigastric pain, and hiccups. At this time, the patient generally can still ambulate, but early signs of lethargy and lassitude can be observed. Around day four, the patient progresses into the gastrointestinal phase. Here, fever and headache continue to persist with the onset of myalgias and arthralgias. Diarrhea and vomiting become a prominent feature with upwards of 10 liters per day being reported. Importantly though, Ebola virus disease is called a viral hemorrhagic fever. Bloody diarrhea emesis and emesis are not always seen. Physiologically, the patients might have weak and fast pulses with decreasing urine output, suggestive of acute kidney injury. During this stage, there is little to no ambulation, and on occasion, patients might manifest an encephalopathy phenotype, where the patients might experience delirium and or seizures, and the patient can be observed to have a stereotypical wide-eyed stare. 
around day 10 of EVD, severely ill patients progress into the terminal phase. During this phase, fever and GI symptoms subside, but signs of end organ damage are more prominent and include oliguria or anuria, and worsen delirium, sometimes progressing to coma. Death is most likely to occur in this phase. As we think about the clinical progression of EVD, the question of whether severe Ebola is a manifestation of viral sepsis is relevant. Importantly, much of EVD clinical presentation can be described as a severe viral gastroenteritis, in which patients develop profuse diarrhea with or without hemorrhage, which results in acute dehydration and hypovolemia. Patients ultimately experience hypovolemic shock with ensuing organ damage and ultimately leading to death. The virus itself likely has a direct effect on this process. Through specific virulence factors, Ebola virus has the ability to suppress host innate response signaling pathways, thus enabling the virus to replicate in an unfettered fashion and disseminate and infect cells in end organs like the liver, kidney, and adrenals. A proportion of patients, however, exhibit a clinical phenotype which appears like sepsis. The patient may or may not have severe diarrhea. The pathophysiology is suggestive of an exuberant host response which results in vascular leakage and coagulopathy, ultimately leading to end-organ damage from septic shock. Again, the virus itself likely contributes directly to the exacerbation of this response. The similarities between EVD and sepsis have been highlighted previously. Judith Hellman, in an opinion piece, highlighted specific parameters which are shared between sepsis and Ebola virus disease, namely systemic inflammation with both the pro- and anti-inflammatory uh, cytokine response, immune dysfunction, coagulopathy, endothelial dysfunction, and organ dysfunction. And indeed, a multi-platform analysis of samples from Sierra Leone corroborate this idea. In a study conducted by Eisfeld and colleagues, samples from 20 Sierra Leonean Ebola virus disease patients and 10 healthy controls were analyzed to evaluate for proteomic, metabolomic, lipidomic, and transcriptomic signatures of fatal EVD compared to EVD survivors and controls. The study demonstrated metabolomic and lipidomic signatures comparable to the host inflammatory response in sepsis. As well, when comparing this transcriptomic signature in EVD fatalities to a publicly available dataset of sepsis patients, common T-lymphocyte-associated signatures were identified. For example, patients with septic shock and fatal EVD were found to have greater enrichment of transcripts associated with T-cell suppression, especially through the PD-1 or program death signaling pathway when compared to healthy controls. Thus far, I have been speaking of sepsis in terms of primary viral sepsis. It is also important to consider another manifestation of sepsis in EVG, and that is secondary bacterial sepsis. The World Health Organization recommends that broad-spectrum antibiotics be empirically administered to patients with severe EVD. The justification for antibiotics here is twofold. One, patients presenting with undifferentiated fever in settings where Ebola outbreaks occur may very likely have other causes of sepsis in their differential diagnosis. And two, there is a concern for secondary bacteremia from gut translocation. Bacteremia has been reported in case reports from the West. Moreover, a couple recent papers have supported the possibility of secondary bacterial sepsis from gut translocation. Enterobacteraceae RNA was sequenced in a study by Miles Carroll and colleagues, where deep sequencing was performed on admission blood samples from Sierra Leone and Ebola fatalities and survivors. In addition, in a letter to the editor, Lawrence Lynn suggests that the direct viral infection of colonic endo and epithelium 
increases risk for translocation of gut bacteria into blood, and that this bacteria manifests manifest as a late Ebola sepsis-like syndrome. And this finding is not necessarily associated with the level of virus in the blood. So in summary, it is important to be aware that the clinical presentation of Ebola virus disease exists along a predictable continuum of illness severity, and that a phenotype of sepsis can be implicated in EVD as both a primary viral sepsis and a secondary bacterial sepsis. And finally, the relationship of EVD to sepsis is illustrated in observations that the host response to fatal EVD is similar to that seen in sepsis. As a final thought, I would like to provide you with a brief word from the field in DRC. The outbreak was first reported in eastern DRC on August 1st in the North Kivu and Ituri provinces. As of September 3rd, there have been 124 cases and 85 deaths. As expected, the sepsis phenotype has been notable in a proportion of patients. Ultimately, we would benefit from an improved understanding of the similarities and differences between EBD and sepsis in order to better inform the clinical management strategies for Ebola virus disease. Thank you. Well, clearly that was an excellent presentation about a very uh, alarming and potentially uh, devastating scourge of Ebola virus disease. Unfortunately, we cannot take any questions as Dr. Jacob is presently in the field, but we certainly do wish him all the success in the world in assisting with containing the current outbreak of this uh, terrible illness. Moving on, our next speaker is one of our other uh, well-regarded Canadian colleagues. Dr. Fowler joins us from the University of Toronto. Uh, where he serves as Director of the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation, Clinical Epidemiology and Healthcare Research Program. Uh, he's a consultant to the WHO as well, and has a long-standing expertise in epidemiology and clinical outcomes in the critically ill as well as infectious disease outbreaks. And he will be speaking to us today the impact of uh, influenza on sepsis throughout the world. Without further ado, Dr. Fowler. Uh, thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be invited. It's a pleasure to listen to uh, to colleague Shevin Jacobs. Um, I'm going to focus on sepsis from the viral perspective, looking at seasonal avian and and sw so-called swine flu. Uh, and I'm also going to present a little bit of lessons learned from influenza and SARS. And I'll take um, a bit of a systems-based approach to the focus of the, the talk today. Um, what, what causes sepsis? And so this would highlight that certainly we have positive blood cultures for bacterial organisms, gram-negative and positive, and occasionally yeast and fungus, but oftentimes we don't know what's causing sepsis. Up to a third of the cases are culture-negative, and it's possible that those are bacterial causes that are just uh, insufficiently, um, insufficiently sort of documented by our current techniques, but it's also possible that many of what uh, we, cases that we believe are, are, are sepsis are in fact bacterial sepsis or in fact viral sepsis. Um, the issue about what causes viral sepsis is sort of very broad and very dependent upon the region of the world that you may live in. We're going to focus on respiratory pathogens today, influenza, uh, coronaviruses, and I put one slide just to comment that there are a whole lot of different viruses that can cause sepsis syndromes that have similarities and differences to our more common sort of bacterial species. The next slide 
tries to focus uh, on a more global perspective than maybe our individual countries or individual hospitals. And to say that while much of the information around sepsis generally and viral sepsis comes from high-income countries, certainly the burden of illness is felt most in other parts of the world, and often by population base, but also by uh, sort of local patterns of viral ecology. One of the things that I personally have learned uh, during outbreaks that I've been involved with is that one of the big issues of viral sepsis beyond the individual sort of patient outcomes is that our capacity to care for patients is often exposed when we are in the midst of heightened viral sepsis, oftentimes in, in, in outbreaks. And our ability to care for patients and our ability to get people better is often a little bit unmasked when our system resources and the need for caring for patients is that a bit of a mismatch. And we'll talk a little bit about that. A historical example, and maybe one of the first times when we have some reasonable data to put uh, some effect size on how bad this can be for health systems globally, uh, maybe goes back to the early part of the 20th century uh, at the very end of the, uh, the Great War when there was a big outbreak of H1N1, so-called Spanish flu, that seemed to get young people very ill. And a lot of sort of lower respiratory tract infections, severe critical illness and death. And by June of 1920, uh, about two years into this H1N1 outbreak of multiple waves, about 50 million people had died, about 3% of the global population at that time and was one of the contributors potentially to the end of, end of that war. But a severe pandemic uh, that really changed the course of, of history. These days, people would tend not to be cared for sort of in large open areas and large tents in much of the developed world, but in fact, they're going to be coming to intensive care units. And uh, folks will often survive if we have the resources to do so. And that's very different in very uh, different different locations of the world. In 2003, here in Toronto, where I'm, I'm presenting from today, uh, we were hit, as was uh, many many other parts of the world, with a new, uh, a newly recognized coronavirus called SARS. And some of the lessons that that we learned during the SARS coronavirus in Toronto is that outbreak in Toronto is that there there are important lessons for both patients. Uh, practitioners and healthcare systems. At the patient level, uh, we found that if you were critically ill with SARS, that one month into your illness, you were either passed away or on a ventilator about half of the time. And that's an important lesson with respect to outcomes. Another important lesson, however, was that we were very effective at transmitting the virus and viral sepsis from person to person, particularly so in hospitals and among healthcare workers. If you look at individual healthcare workers, physicians and nurses who are involved, for instance, with intubation, patients with SARS, we had an enormous sort of increasing risk depending upon both the proximity and the amount of time you spent with patients. I've seen nurses at highest risk for receiving viral sepsis from the patients who they were caring. At the system level, throughout the greater Toronto area, we in fact lost about 40% of all of the ICU beds in the system uh, because of quarantine of individual ICUs where this outbreak was, was rampant. 
about 20% of all of the critically ill patients were in fact healthcare workers. And so both at the patient level, the practitioner level, and the system level, one of the chief lessons of treating viral, viral illness and viral sepsis is that it's easy to transmit. One of the secondary lessons that we learned was that when patients are getting ill, your colleagues are getting ill, and the system is having a hard time dealing with the clinical response, it's very difficult to learn from that experience through research because there are very few people remaining to engage in clinical research, to engage in trying to better understand the illness and to help uh, help patients with, with that. During the 2009 and 10 influenza H1N1 uh, pandemic that started originally in Mexico and the southwestern United States in terms of at least its, its recognition and spread oftentimes by travel and air travel to other parts of the globe, we, we found another important lesson that outcomes for patients seemingly are very dependent upon the healthcare system in which they're cared. And there are a couple of papers that looked in a very similar manner uh, at patients in Mexico and Canada. Similar case report forms, back to the inclusion and exclusion criteria, found that among critically ill patients with H1N1, they were predominantly young and they had surprisingly uh, poor outcomes. About 15% of patients were dying in Canada, but remarkably in Mexico, who had the sort of first wave of illness and felt really the brunt of a, a, a large challenge to their own capacity to care for patients. About 40% of patients uh, were dying in the, in the first waves. These patients, oftentimes viral in origin, but potentially secondarily infected with bacteria, end up having severe lower airways disease and pneumonia. The secondary infection, even though this is a viral sepsis origin, is often staphylococcal, uh, but other gram-positives and some gram-negatives then lead to a secondary bacterial sepsis on top of the origins of viral sepsis. And reflecting on those chest x-rays and CAT scans that show really no alveoli left for gas exchange, in these cases, this is where probably in the modern era, we really had an example of the patient population, the young patient population that might benefit from extracorporeal oxygenation and carbon dioxide removal. And ECMO was used in really large degrees in different parts of the world, and certainly so in Australia and New Zealand as their, uh, as their winter occurred in the Northern Hemisphere summer. Uh, they very quickly mobilized extra support and found that patients, especially young patients with comorbid conditions, did remarkably well with respect to our historical notions of what ECMO would do for respiratory failure in adults. And almost three-quarters of patients were treated survived to discharge, which is a very high number in terms of the case series of unselected, unselected patients with severe respiratory failure receiving ECMO. And those outcomes can't be replicated necessarily in all parts of the world because those technologies don't exist in all parts of the world. And when we did a look back at outcomes of H1N1 across different healthcare jurisdictions and systems, we found that outcomes were very much uh, dependent upon a socioeconomic gradient, and found that the outcomes were chiefly, uh, in addition to patient factors, influenced by where in the world that you were able to, to treat people and the resources that you had. 
When we repeated the same study again in 2014, in a very heavy H1N1 year, we found that the outcomes in Canada and Mexico were similar to what we found during the pandemic. And we were better able to quantify the individual risk factors. Certainly, there were patient-level risk factors with oxygenation impairment and, and age, but also that ICUs with fewer resources in terms of beds, ventilation, uh, and personnel, rescue oxygenation therapies, were much more likely to have patients that, that died with a very similar illness adjusted for patient-level characteristics. So an important lesson learned from my experience from a couple of outbreaks is that the outcomes can be very different depending upon the setting that you're, that you're treating patients. Research lessons to be learned, just to highlight uh, on a prior comment, is that when people are overwhelmed with clinical response and you have decreasing numbers of healthcare workers, particularly because healthcare workers are getting ill due to transmission of viral sepsis in hospital, it can be very difficult to quickly ramp up the research response. And this was a study that we did along the lines of uh, heavy uh, H1N1 year in 2014 where we attempted to do an observational study on multiple centers, not in a pandemic year, but in a year where there was just an increased burden of respiratory uh, illness due to viral sepsis. And we found that on average, it took about one year from the initiation of a study protocol to having sites up and running and being ready to screen and enroll patients. And so, a lesson from this would be that if we try to replicate this in a time that it's even busier, when there are even fewer resources, we'll very usually fail to enact clinical research in the context of, a, of an outbreak. With H1N1, as with SARS, there were very few clinical trials. Uh, there were a number of observational studies, mostly uh, happening and coming out after uh, the outbreaks were, were done. And so really a lesson that I think the last probably decade or so people have started to uh, learn from and move upon is that we have to be ready and prepared to learn from these outbreaks in real time as opposed to react to them and conduct clinical research at the same time that we're trying to conduct clinical care. And some of the ways to maybe consider doing this, and I want to just highlight a couple of organizations that have really been focused on this, the acute uh, severe of the International Respiratory uh, Infection Consortium, uh, or SARIC, has been active essentially since the H1N1 pandemic to try to get people prepared to do clinical research by having online tools and case report forms that people can use uh, irrespective of their healthcare system. Uh, in addition, uh, the World Health Organization has been very supportive of this and has been continually trying to uh, get uh, jurisdictions research ready to learn from not just respiratory uh, infection, viral sepsis, but also, uh, as Dr. Jacobson last presentation mentioned, uh, the context of the Ebola outbreaks that happen at an increasing frequency. Um, the case report forms are geared towards allowing people to enter data uh, in a way that respects their local capacity minimal, minimal data sets uh, at one level or one tier of, of case reporting and increasing complexity depending upon the resources that you might have available to, uh, to collect data and to contribute to their response. 
in summary, lessons to be learned from combination of, of coronavirus outbreaks, influenza outbreaks, and in fact pandemics that we've seen even over the last uh, the last decade are that our capacity for care for the very sickest of patients is oftentimes exposed during times of increased demand. However, the vast majority of these patients can survive if resources exist to care for them. That healthcare worker illness is a very important component of outbreaks of viral sepsis. And it's equally important to be ready to initiate a research response uh, as it is to be caring for patients. Otherwise, we won't be able to learn and improve outcomes for subsequent outbreaks and subsequent patients. And I'll stop there. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dr. Fowler. A great presentation about some very uh, worldwide uh, health challenges. There are a couple questions from our online audience. Uh, the first actually asked the question of uh, what is the risk of infection to the fetus and newborn in, uh, you know, in situations where a mother is infected late in pregnancy? That's an excellent question. So uh, from the fetus perspective, I can't comment from uh, personal knowledge of transmission and any uh, fetus specific effects other than the maternal effects that would be um, uh, that would occur for a, uh, a critically ill and infected pump for newborns and we've seen this in you know a number of um, a number of studies in the neonatal period the risk can be very high both with transmission and outcomes are often very poor um, and certainly so in jurisdictions that don't have the capacity to provide oxygenation and ventilation support for critically ill newborns. For uh, children, as you get beyond the newborn phase, then mortality tends to drop, uh, particularly so in areas that can, can care. But, but uh, maternal outcomes uh, are the chief determinant probably for neonatal outcomes, uh, for fetal outcomes rather, and for neonatal outcomes, the, um, the transmission risk is, uh, is is strong and, and very important very important depending upon where you are in the world and the resources that you have to care for sick neonates. Excellent. Uh, another question here is uh, what do you believe is the treatment of choice if where it is available in terms of an antiviral for H1N1? The question is raised here of uh, is versus Zenemavir a better agent in your estimation? That's, a, that's an excellent question. And I would say um, there may not be a definitive answer on this. And broadly speaking, uh, I'd say that supportive care with respect to any uh, any component of evidence-based care for critically ill patients should be prioritized very highly in the response, for instance, to a patient with severe influenza. And so I would start there and say everything we know about treating sick people should apply to patients with severe influenza both ventilation strategies and general supportive care strategies. Looking at specific therapies for patients with influenza and looking at specific antivirals, um, neuroninhibitase inhibitors would likely be viewed as being effective. Unfortunately, we don't have clinical trials looking at uh, zanamivir or oseltamivir or other neuroninhibitase inhibitors uh, in comparison to a uh, placebo in the recent era, as people have felt it might not be an ethically sound trial to undertake 
And we've generalized from the literature that we've had less severely ill patients uh, who have had a decreased uh, duration of symptoms and potentially a, a lessening of the severity of symptoms. So the nuanced question of uh, osteomavir or zinamavir is a tricky one. And uh, to be honest, I don't think we have uh, really strong evidence to be able to to, uh, to say one or the other would be would be better. Well, Dr. Fowler, thank you very much. Um, unfortunately, we'll have to cut the questions off there and move to our, our next speakers. But uh, thank you, and do be assured that there were many more questions out there for you. Thanks very much. Thank you again. Uh, our penultimate speaker, Dr. Pravin Amin, will be joining us from the Bombay Hospital Institute of Medical Sciences in Mumbai, India. Uh, Dr. Amin is a past president of the Indian Society for Critical Care Medicine with over 25 years of critical care experience, uh, widely published in tropical diseases in the intensive care unit, and will be speaking us, to us today on sepsis associated with malaria and dengue fever. Dr. Amin, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Neil. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from whichever part of the world you're logged in. I'm going to be speaking to you about sepsis in malaria and dengue. Pretty long talk, but let's try and cut it as short as I can. Uh, uh, to give you an overview of sepsis in India, we did a point prevalence study of nearly 4,000 odd patients in 120 ICUs. We had about 28% of patients who had sepsis. And the mortality in this group of uh, patients in severe sepsis and septic shock was about 42%. Now, once when you look at uh, the number of organ failures, uh, clearly there's a linear relation to, to mortality as the number of organ failures increased in this group of patients. A very interesting finding in our septic patients was that the mortality was low in infections, uh, sepsis created by tropical illness like malaria and dengue, as opposed to uh, the other causes of sepsis, as you can see, uh, nearly 30% uh, of our patients with tropical illness died. And this is probably because we had a younger population of patients, and these are patients who respond very well to aggressive uh, intensive care therapy. When we look at uh, trying to understand the severity of illness in patients with uh, tropical illness, here's a study which was just published a couple of months ago where they looked at uh, nearly 6,500 patients from low- and middle-income countries. Uh, really, uh, patients were from nearly 10 countries where they looked at Q-score scores and SERS uh, criteria. And uh, clearly, the Q-score score clearly uh, in terms of the uh, benefit in terms of the predicting mortality and the predicting the validity of mortality as can be seen with the ROC curve showing that the QSOFA scored clearly scored well in these group of patients as opposed to the SERS criteria. And when they look at the subgroup of patients who are included with malaria and dengue from the SIQUMET study, again here you could see that the patients with the the QSOFA score were better able to predict mortality as compared to the SERS criteria. This uh, this was again studied uh, uh, with the Tikwamets 
study, which was a trial done on adults uh, with severe malaria. There were about 1,187 patients, of which about 86% of them had severe sepsis. And when you look at multivariable logistic regression, you realize that uh, there were certain predictors for mortality. And these were coma, shock, presence of severe jaundice, uh, parasitemia, anion gap in enlarge, and of course, uh, respiratory distress. Uh, there are five types of malaria. Predominantly, the more common ones are the YVAC, which is less virulent than the falciparum, which tends to be the one which is associated with significant mortality. There's a fifth species called as the Plasmodium nolisi, which uh, actually the mode of transmission is not clear, but again can cause severe malaria. The rest of the malaria are transmitted by the Antifleas mosquitoes. As shown in this uh, graph worldwide, where the countries marked in red are endemic to malaria. A very interesting finding, which was recently published in The Lancet, was that this was an adult study of nearly 3,000-odd patients from Asia and Mozambique, uh, where a very interesting finding was the mortality was about 88% in the young group of patients. And this is a five-year or a five-year interval. Uh, 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 you know, the study, the ages were divided into five-year intervals. And the study actually looked at prospective studies over 30 years. And one could see that uh, really uh, the most of the mortality was between 15 and 50 years. And as you get older, between 50 and 70, the mortality drops down to 10.9%. And in the much older population, it's about 0.7%, telling that uh, patients as you get older probably develop some degree of immunity. Uh, this is the WHO definition for severe malaria, which really encompasses cerebral malaria, jaundice, severe anemia, uh, renal failure, hypoglycemia, hyperparasitemia, shock, and uh, where the systolic blood pressure is less than 80, coagulopathy, pulmonary edema, and of course, presence of metabolic acidosis. If you look at the pathogenesis, really, when the parasite invades RBCs, it finally leads to multiple organ failure by three pathways. One is by hemolysis and giving rise to hemoglobinuria and anemia. Then second is the cytoadherence. And this is very common among the uh, plasmodium uh, falciparum, where there is adherence and there's a form of clumping of the w uh, RBCs, whereby there's a microcirculatory occlusion, giving rise to thrombocytopenia. All this leads to cytokine activation and multiple organ failure. Likewise, parasite metabolism contributes to considerable amount of hypoglycemia and lactic acidosis. Uh, this is the, the tests that we do for malaria. The most frequently used is microscopy and the dipstick, which is uh, more frequently available in the cheapest form. In this study uh, uh, from India uh, about 13 years ago, 14 years ago, uh, you could see that this is about 300-odd patients from a single center. Uh, the mortality in malaria clearly increased as the number of organ failure increases, going up to 90% when four, four or more organs were involved. An interesting finding in this study was there were two peaks of organ failure. The first peak was because of the parasitemia, 
And the second peak was probably because of translocation of bacteria across the gut, gut membrane. And this is probably because of the cytoadherence. There was a lot of ileus in these group of patients. And the second peak of organ dysfunction actually was due to bacteremia. So in the initial stages, you may not need to give antibiotics, but when there's a second peak, this is usually due to bacterial infection. So antibiotics is probably required. In terms of resuscitating patients with severe malaria, crystalloids are used in normotensive patients. And of course, this, uh, the famous uh, FEAT study where boluses were given in the children population in non-ICU patients, the bolus therapy actually increased mortality. Of course, that was not an ICU study, but if you have hypotension and shock, you would probably follow the surviving sepsis guideline. Of course, one would debate about the, the quantity of fluid that you give, whether 30 ml per kg is given, or whether you would use more hemodynamic parameters to actually initiate fluid therapy. And of course, when there is associated hypotensive shock, you would need vasopressor therapy. Uh, there was an Asian study which actually looked at using transpulmonary thermodilution uh, fluid therapy. And this was uh, based on uh, uh, the studies where they found that despite using fluid resuscitation, using uh, uh, thermodilution, patients still ended up with, uh, with the pulmonary edema. The treatment strategies are if they're chloroquine sensitive, use chloroquine. But uh, between uh, when the chloroquine re resistant patterns, you would use either quinine or artemisinin. These are the agents which you would use for therapy. Of course, the two big trials, which which was the Aquamet trial, which was in Africa with children, and Asia, the Sequamet trial, which actually showed that uh, uh, artemisinin was superior to quinine. Uh, so clearly now the choice of agent is artemisinin. We now move on to dengue. Dengue really affects a large large number of population in the world is uh, you know, uh, and they are endemic for dengue, and you have nearly 50 million deaths, and uh, most of them uh, are in uh, in the in Africa and in the poorer countries. Uh, uh, 50 million cases, and about 2.5 percent of these cases actually die every year. Uh, as you can see here, in the Americas and in uh, Southeast Asia and in the Western Pacific region. There's a clear incidence in the in, uh, there's a clear increase in the incidence of dengue over the years, and uh, clearly shown by these graphs here. However, the mortality has really not increased uh, as shown in the last graph. Uh, though the incidence has increased, the mortality in dengue has not increased. The world map here, marked in orange, just shows the countries which are endemic to dengue. And uh, there are clearly, uh, dengue is an arbovirus. It is uh, transmitted by the Aedes aegypti. It's a single-stranded RNA. There are four types of dengue viruses, one, two, three, and four. Uh, usually it presents as an undifferentiated fever, a classic dengue fever. Then it could progress into a hemorrhagic fever, dengue shock syndrome. Approximately 1% to 5% of patients develop severe manifestations. Now, if you understand the pathogenesis, there is the initial uh, uh, entry in the one or two days, there's high-grade fever. And, of course, when the fever settles down, then you can get a cytokine storm. And this is usually seen uh, following a second dengue infection. 
uh, of a different type. So, if you, for example, if you get dengue one and subsequently get uh, months later dengue T or a couple of years later dengue two, the uh, non-neutralizing uh, antibodies combined with the new uh, new virus, the type two virus, and can actually precipitate a cytokine storm. So, it's usually the second virus, second infection with a different type of virus which actually precipitates dengue shock syndrome. The investigations are very clear. A lot of liver dysfunctions can be seen. And the dengue-specific tests are isolation of serology. If you look at the uh, uh, the pattern in dengue fever, usually once the fever settles down, the platelet count and the hematocrit remains normal. But in the presence of uh, 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 dengue hemorrhagic shock, when the fever touches normal, there's defervescence and then there is plasma leakage. And that forms the basis for the problems associated with dengue. Uh, as you can see, the, the warning signs are abdominal pain, uh, presence of mucosal bleed, uh, severe liver uh, uh, enzymes elevated, and a rising hematocrit. When there is plasma leakage, you end up in shock. So in, in the pathophysiology of dengue, you will realize that the, there is a, a reduced intravascular volume as opposed to other forms of sepsis. The capillary leak actually increases the hematohemo concentration, and this gives rise to dehydration. And of course, when we look at uh, uh, sometimes these patients can develop myocarditis, and various other organs can be involved, and cephalopathy, liver dysfunction, kidney failure. Another entity that we actually see is the dengue hemophagocytic syndrome. And this can be, it's, uh, when patients with dengue get this problem, they are uh, prone for quite severe form of illness, and it is marked by hyperferritinemia, uh, hypertriglycemia. This uh, particular complication kills patients. So resuscitation is based by WHO on pulse pressure, variation, capillary filling, and hematocrit, and uh, urine output. And of course, you can follow the guidelines by giving uh, fluids. Uh, the treatment is really, there's no specific treatment. Steroids and antivirals are not helpful. Carbazochrome is, uh, it decreases capillary permeability. There's a role for component therapy and organ support. With that, I'd like to thank you for your uh, uh, for listening to my talk. Excellent, thank you, Doctor. I mean, we have a lot of questions. You are definitely uh, getting some interest from all over the globe. Uh, several questions have been raised about uh, vaccines for both uh, dengue and malaria. What are what are your thoughts on the uh, the efficacy and the potential contribution of the well, vaccines well, to the process? Uh, the new, new the, the vaccines are still in in uh, you know uh, uh, still not available for therapeutics. There has been a, a trial which has actually looked at vaccines. Uh, we hope in the near future we would get some vaccine which will be available for uh, for uh, therapeutics and for use in the general population. As of now, uh, it is still in the tr various trial phases and. Uh, I guess we are all looking for one. And as I showed you in one of my slides, in malaria, the elderly population actually do very well. This is probably they have, uh, they have developed immunity over, over time. So I guess there is clearly a role for vaccination. Excellent.
another question that came up that was quite excellent. Um, when would you consider intensive care admission for patients with either dengue or malaria in endemic regions where these uh, infections occur commonly? Well, like all patients, you know, there's a look factor. You can, when you come and see the patient, there is a look factor which says that this patient is not doing well. He's tachypneic, tachycardic, uh, showing hypotension, air hunger. So very profusely sweating. So there's a lot of stress. And there are clear telltale signs that these are patients who would need careful monitoring and very aggressive resuscitation because once you, uh, once you identify them and Actually, from our data set from the INDICAP study where we found that rapid resuscitation and appropriate resuscitation of patients gives very good outcomes in these group of patients. A, a, certainly a related question. Uh, there was a, a question raised about uh, the utility of following blood lactate measurements in septic malaria patients and what your experience with the uh, the usefulness of that laboratory test for you know, monitoring response if you look at the pathogenesis and you see the, uh, when I showed you in one of my slides that the metabolism of the parasite actually produces a lot of lactate. So it's not very uncommon to see extremely high lactate in, in the real sick patients who are shocked. And here again, this is probably when you resuscitate early in these patients, you see the lactime really shortens when you will find extreme the lactate level going through the roof and it rapidly comes down very rapidly once you give the appropriate anti-malarial drug and, uh, you know, adequate fluid resuscitation will actually ensure that uh, the lactate can level comes down. And we actually monitor lactime in terms of response to therapy and the, and the response is quite overwhelming when we look at the lactate levels at different time intervals. We, in fact, measure it every four to six hours after we uh, get the first sample. Oh, so many good questions coming in. You're a popular man. Uh, last question. Is it possible in your estimation to distinguish uh, a sepsis syndrome related to dengue malaria from the infection itself? Is there a unique sepsis syndrome that occurs due to these infections? Or are they so intertwined well, that they cannot be distinguished? Well, they still intertwine. But you see, uh, when you get, say, somebody with malaria or dengue, the things that we notice very rapidly is the platelet counts. They tend to drop very rapidly as opposed to convention sepsis. So that, that's a giveaway sign. Presence of large liver dysfunction with a rapid fall in platelets you know, one needs to keep tropical illness clearly in mind. And even before your results come in, sometimes we would uh, administer anti-malarials very early in the course of the illness, simply because, you know, when we when we get the appropriate therapy, in, uh, this is one condition where we rapidly destroy the parasite, you get extremely good results in such patients. So it's not... Uh, it's not uncommon for us to actually suspect uh, malaria or a dengue. Dengue, there's no treatment, of course. In malaria, uh, if you really suspect that patient has got malaria, and it's usually end endemic in a particular season. For example, the monsoon season, when the breeding of mosquitoes increases, and following that, you have a rise 
you have a tropical illness like syndrome which is very classical and you will probably suspect malaria and you would start anti malaria even before your lab results come in and once it comes negative you then take it off but it would be appropriate to uh, you know treat malaria uh, in in the appropriate season in the, in the right season and uh, the kind of presentation that they come with well dr mean thank you so much and i apologize to our audience who uh, asked many many great probing questions that we were not able to get to uh, my apologies to those individuals, but we must move on. Our final speaker of this uh, third session of the Second World Sepsis Congress is my neighbor down here in the American South, Dr. Imrana Malik, joining us from uh, the MD Anderson Cancer Center, where she's an associate professor in the Department of Critical Care, a very active uh, participant in the Global Sepsis Alliance and World Sepsis Day efforts. And she will be speaking to us today on sepsis and cancer patients. Uh, Dr. Malik, the floor is yours. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you very much to the Global Sepsis Alliance for the opportunity to speak today on sepsis and cancer patients. This talk is coming to you from MD Anderson, as was mentioned, in Houston, Texas, where we are waging a war on cancer, one sepsis battle at a time. Now, that's my own slogan and not approved by MD Anderson but I think it's a really appropriate one. Um, so we're going to have a, a whirlwind tour of uh, sepsis and cancer patients, and I'll start with my disclosure. I have no conflict of interest related to this talk. Um, we'll, we'll review epidemiology outcomes uh, as well as treatment and followed by special management considerations and other complications from cancer therapies as they relate to sepsis. So let's dive right into epidemiology and outcomes. The incidence of severe sepsis in cancer patients is estimated at 16.4 cases per 1,000 persons with cancer, and this incidence is four times higher than in non-cancer patients. The incidence is also almost um, age-independent, um, as evidenced by the solid line in the graph to the right. And this is explained by the fact that Younger cancer patients tend to receive more aggressive chemotherapeutics, and the older cancer patients receive less aggressive treatments, which can yield a similar incidence across that age span. Um, interestingly, the incidence of severe sepsis in non-cancer patients is increasing exponentially with increasing age, as evidenced by the dashed line in the graph. Um, and this is explained by potentially by increasing survivorship in the elderly, as noted by Dr. Hannah Wunsch in this wonderful lecture earlier um, in this session. Also, cancer patients are among the most, uh, uh, cancer is among the most common comorbid medical conditions in sepsis, occurring 16.8% of the time in U.S. sepsis patients. And cancer of all types increases the risk of sepsis by tenfold. Regarding the mortality rates, um, in-hospital mortality rates for severe sepsis in cancer patients are estimated between 17.9% to 44.7%, depending on which continent you're on and whether the data is looking at overall hospitalizations or specifically at ICU patients. But both the incidence rates and the mortality rates in cancer patients are decreasing over time, similar to the general population as evidenced by the solid uh, line in the um, graph to the right. Um, and this decrease may be related to nonspecific improvements in how we take care of um, ICU patients and also to better diagnostic criteria and coding practices over time. 
But despite these improvements, the mortality rates remain extremely high, 55% higher in cancer patients than in non-cancer patients. So, um, in looking at the mortality variation between cancer types, in the U.S., um, William et al. in 2004 found that among the hospitalized cancer patients, the overall mortality rate was similar between hematologic and solid tumor patients. But among cancer patients in European ICUs, Tacone et al. in 2009 found that mortality rates differed markedly between hematologic and solid tumor patients. Um, and this may suggest that the differences may be most readily apparent among the sickest patients in the ICU. So when we looked at tumor-specific sepsis mortality in Texas hospitals, we found that there was a statistically significant increase in mortality among hematologic tumor patients, specifically AML patients, compared to the other cancers. And this increased from 20.5% in the general cancer population to 29.7% in the AML patients. Now, let's turn briefly to the treatment of sepsis and septic shock. Um, this is based on Surviving Sepsis Campaign 2016 guidelines that can be broken down into the initial resuscitation and then ongoing management, which applies to all patients. And I'm not going to get in very detail with um, these recommendations because some of this is going to be discussed tomorrow uh, as part of Session 8. But um, suffice it to say, initial resuscitation begins with uh, treatment immediately, uh, recommends crystalloid for resuscitation, as well as frequent reassessments to guide fluids, um, targeting a mean uh, arterial pressure of 65 millimeters of mercury, and then using um, guided resuscitation for normalizing the lactate. Ongoing management would include obtaining cultures, starting IV antiviral microbial therapy, obtaining source control, using supportive measures to for blood pressure control, um, and other uh, important therapeutics as mentioned. But Additionally, um, the guidelines recommend the use of procalcitonin levels to support shortening that duration of um, antimicrobial use in these patients and, as early as feasible, trying to address the goals of care in these um, extremely ill patients. In June of this year, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign published recommendations for combining the three- and the six-hour bundles into a single one-hour bundle. This one-hour bundle includes the measurement of lactate and reassessment of that initial lactate if uh, the lactate was greater than two, obtaining blood cultures prior to administration of antibiotics if possible, um, administering, administering broad-spectrum antibiotics for the patients um, at the beginning, and using the crystalloids for resuscitation for hypotension or for lactate of four or higher, and finally, applying vasopressors um, if the patient is hypotensive during or after fluid resuscitation to maintain that map of greater than 65. It's noted that there's no published studies yet evaluating the efficacy of this one-hour bundle in various subgroups such as burn patients and immunocompromised patients. So um, in cancer patients, um, what we find that there are special considerations when it comes to treating sepsis. So for instance, antibiotic resistance can be a problem and is related to the use of uh, antibiotic prophylaxis, which can affect treatment options and choices for these patients. The use of granulocyte colony stimulating factor can affect evaluation of white blood cell and vandemia, which can affect screening criteria and um, potentially contribute to false positive rates or false negative rates, depending on the level of the white blood cells. Um, 
Additionally, white blood cell transfusions can lead to pulmonary complications, which can confound the ability of, to accurately diagnose what's going on with these patients. Um, and they have not been shown to affect mortality in this population. Um, the uh, presence of prolonged neutropenia, which is defined as greater than seven days, um, can occur in cancer patients and can hinder optimal treatment of infections, um, such as gram-positive pathogens, which are more commonly um, uh, the infecting organisms in most hospitals, and for cancer patients, uh, are likely occurring due to treatment-related severe oral mucositis and diarrhea that damages um, mucosal barriers. Um, and cancer patients also have longer-term IV catheter use that um, can predispose them to gram-positive infections as well. Um, and severe thrombocytopenia can occur in cancer patients often as a combination of underlying disease, chemotherapy, and ongoing sepsis. Um, this can significantly limit surgical interventions for source control and can certainly hinder removal of infected um, tunneled catheters in these patients. Also, stress dose steroids are commonly used in septic shock, but even a short course of um, stress dose steroids can increase the risk of ICU card infections in hematologic patients um, and therefore is a consideration in management of these patients. From a diagnostic standpoint, leukemic infiltration can also be a problem because of pulmonary involvement from either leukostasis or infiltration of the white cells and or acute lysis, which can mimic pneumonia findings on a chest x-ray. Um, and finally, impairments and anti-infective responses can occur in patients with advanced malignant diseases, and this can lead to decreased systemic bacterial clearance as well as... Um, Alterations in both intestinal epithelial and lymphocyte apoptosis affecting um, outcomes in these patients. Um, so there are many complications um, that are uh, noted for from cancer therapeutics that can occur. And in the case of sepsis, we find um, a variety of sepsis-like syndromes that can be very confounding. Uh, one of these is tumor lysis syndrome. This can occur due to induction chemotherapy and may result in multiple organ dysfunctions, presumably due to massive release of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, HLH, which is hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, is an uncontrolled hyperinflammation from overwhelming cytokine storm. This can be triggered by infection, malignancy, or autoimmune disease. And the signs and symptoms um, consist of fever, leukopenia, DIC, elevated ferritin, splenomegaly, or an aseptic-like presentation. Of note, the life-saving aggressive immunosuppressive treatment for this HLH is not part of routine sepsis care. So it's vitally important to have a high index of suspicion for HLH in the appropriate setting in a patient with septic presentation. And finally, the newer T-cell-mediated cancer therapies known as CAR or chimeric antigen receptor therapies. In these therapies, patients' T-cells are genetically engineered with surface receptors called CARs that recognize specific proteins on tumor cells. Now, these have been used for um, ALL in pediatric patients and advanced lymphomas in adult patients, but are now being attempted also in solid tumor patients um, more recently. Among the frequent side effects is cytokine release syndrome. This is a, a rapid release of cytokines leading to very high fevers and hypotension, a presentation similar to sepsis and septic shock. Um, and it's considered an on-target effect of CAR T-cells, um, which means that it's, it's, a, it's an indication that the CAR T-cells are working. 
the more extensive disease burden the patient has, the more CRS that they experience. Um, generally, most of the CRS is managed with standard supportive therapies that can include steroids as well. Um, patients who experience very severe CRS receive tocilizumab or Actemra, which blocks IL-6 activity um, in, this, in these patients. So, in conclusion, uh, incidence and mortality rates in cancer patients with sepsis remain unacceptably high. Sepsis-related mortality rates in cancer patients are decreasing over time, such uh, similar to the general population. And cancer is among the most common comorbid medical condition in sepsis. Cancer patients require special attention and have unique considerations for the treatment of sepsis. And new and emerging cancer therapeutics bring additional challenges in the management of sepsis in cancer care. Thank you very much. Dr. Malik, thank you. What a great overview of a very uh, complicated patient population. We have a great number of questions out there, and I'll try and pick uh, through some of them for you. Uh, a question that was posed, do you think more cancer patients die from sepsis because of the chemotherapy effects or because of the malignancy itself altering, altering the response to uh, sepsis pathogens? I think that's a great question. I think we don't have enough data to tease out the, the differences. What we do know is that commonly these are occurring at the same time in most patients where they have the underlying malignancy and, and immunosuppression from the malignancy. Then concomitantly, they have immunosuppression from their um, cancer therapeutics. And so it can potentially be a an additive effect for these patients. So I think what we're seeing is these profound immunosuppressive states uh, allowing the infections to take hold, but also to then um, set off these profound um, septic shock um, responses in these patients. Um. Similarly, when, when we're talking about cancer patients, are we talking about patients with malignancy or patients on therapy, or do the data out there make a distinction between the two? Yeah, so, so far, we don't have data that distinguishes between the two. So when we are talking about cancer patients who have sepsis, um, there's, there's less of a breakdown of whether you're a cancer patient on therapy or cancer patient off therapy, or even whether you're in um, currently in remission or you're in relapse. A lot of that, we know that um, the more relapses you have, the higher the mortality rate. We just don't have all of that um, teased out in terms of whether they're actively being treated or not being treated at the time of their sepsis. Excellent. Last quick question. Um, raised by a couple of, of people, uh, what is the utility of using procalcitonin in cancer patients with sepsis? So, um, so far, um, what we have um, utilized at our institution and what we've seen in terms of the documentation, the data, is that um, it can uh, assist specifically in the ICU population in um, managing the use of antimicrobials in these patients and trying to get uh, reduce the, the number of days that uh, the antimicrobials are on board. Um, beyond that, we haven't described the utility um, for patients, let's say, outside of the ICU or patients um, who either present in the emergency center. That, that is 
that is research does uh, upcoming forthcoming and we should have some more uh, information soon Excellent. Well, unfortunately, I think uh, due to the constraints of time, so we don't want to chew, chew too much into uh, other sessions I believe have already started. I think we'll have to wrap up there. But there are certainly many more questions out there for you. Uh, Dr. Malik, thank you. It was a great capstone to our presentations for this session. Much appreciated. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I'd certainly like to thank our audience for a great session. There were some amazing questions, and I'm very sorry I wasn't able to get to them all. I'd like to especially thank our speakers for very thoughtful and engaging presentations that they gave across the board. I'd like to remind our audience across the world of the activities of not just the World Sepsis Congress, but forthcoming World Sepsis Day on September 13th. Uh, please look us up on social media. World Sepsis Day is active on all the platforms you can think about, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we're all there. Please check us out and uh, stay tuned for other activities of the upcoming World Sepsis Day on September 13th. We would also, of course, not be able to do what we do without the support of our sponsors from across the world. So we appreciate all of their efforts as well. Before I sign off, I'd like to express my appreciation for all of the engagement from literally across the world. You asked great questions. We appreciate your feedback, your insights, your enthusiasm, and I hope that your interest and participation in the rest of the World Sepsis Congress is as uh, engaged and enthusiastic as I saw in our session today. Thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of the Congress. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making the Second World Sepsis Congress possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with Session 4, Epidemiology of Sepsis, next Thursday. The Second WSC is being brought to you free of charge, so if you enjoyed it, please consider donating. See you next week.